individual listeners. I'm Dan Trevanian, Program Director for the Institute for Migrant Rights. This is the IGIL podcast, bringing you interviews with the world's leading scholars, addressing current debates and sharing global perspectives. This episode, we're joined by Professor Anna Verdeyak. Anna is an expert on international cultural heritage law and teaches at the University of Technology, Sydney. In this episode, Anna and I discuss the origins of cultural heritage as a concept in international law and how it affects people today. When preparing for my interview with Anna, I read an article by Professor John Merriman of Stanford University. Merriman described two ways of thinking about cultural property. He argued you could view it as property of a nation which should be kept and guarded, or you could view it as part of the common history of humankind that should be circulated around the world to promote understanding. Anna rightly explains that there's many more ways to think about cultural heritage. It's complex. The law is influenced by criminal law, humanitarian law, civil law, ethics, and moral quandaries. Anna shares her perspective and helps us understand the complexities. Listen until the end to find the answers. My parents uh, migrated from what is now former Yugoslavia, it's a Croatia now, um, and that very much informed my bringing up, and particularly because in my early 20s, um, the Yugoslav conflict started. So I, it only became apparent to me afterwards um, the impact of that, um, that culture and and examples of culture was de- were deliberately targeted um, during that conflict in a way that people were probably most aware. It's probably one of the earliest people probably, probably remember that are old enough, um, the images of the destruction of the old city of Dubrovnik, but also what happened then in Bosnia-Herzegovina as well. So the deliberate targeting of mosques and also the, the bridge in Mostar. So as a result of that, um, my early work was, I was a practising lawyer, in fact, um, then combined those two elements in my doctoral work, so um, particularly around restitution. So as an academic, and I would see myself more now as an international lawyer, even though my practice area was torts law. The motivations, um, we'll go back to the acknowledgement um, at the beginning of our talk, is that I think all of us now are very conscious, and if we're not, um, we're probably not um, attuned to what is going on in Australia, are becoming increasingly aware of the claims, the rightful claims made by the First Peoples of Australia, the First Nations of Australia in relation to the foundation of this country, but also what impact that had, central impact on their culture and their cultural identities Mm. as a result of um, settlement by Europeans of this country. Uh, You've mentioned terms like cultural heritage and uh, related to that is coming out of conflicts as well. Could you perhaps describe a little bit more what is cultural heritage, maybe what's some examples of that, and where has it really, what was the starting point for this um, concept to come into our consciousness? 
So this, as you can imagine, contestation around all of this, and these are terms that are used in international law. Um, so cultural property, especially in early instruments, so the 1954 Hague Convention covering protection during armed conflict, and then also in the 1970 Convention covering, and these are all um, overseen by UNESCO, the implementation um, covering illicit traffic, that's the 1970 Convention, refers to this idea of cultural property. And there was quite um, rightfully pushback in the 1970s and 1980s and now consistently around the use of the word property because of its notions are very Western notions of the ways of understanding um, culture as being in, uh, divisible and being able to be privately owned, particularly in relation to land and movable cultural objects. And also that it can be traded. Um, and for many people, um, particularly Indigenous peoples around the world, this is an anathema around um, land and also um, sacred, sacred materials. And indeed, this includes ancestral remains, um, being able to be covered on this um, idea of property which can be traded and then bought and sold by individuals. Um, and the pushback in relation to that was then the use of the word or the idea of heritage, and that then emphasises this idea of custodianship, so it, it can't be um, owned as such by individuals, um, the intergenerational aspects of that, and also the pushback around um, Western ways of framing parts of heritage. So um, the idea that it can be broken up into bits. So the way that um, the UNESCO conventions, just because of the historical way of their development, but also Western ways of understanding culture is idea of monuments and sites, of objects being separate from that, and also language and what is now referred to as intangible heritage, all being separate concepts. Whereas for most people, even the person on the street, I suspect, if you were to say to them, they would understand that they are all interrelated in a, in a deep way. And that's certainly the way that um, Indigenous peoples throughout the world have emphasised and as have other um, people said that this is a very artificial way of looking at heritage or culture. And that's why I'll move on to the, the – and you've – it's often put as um, cultural property versus cultural heritage. But increasingly, um, people have also pushed back against the idea of um, the notion of heritage as well as being, and that's an understandable pushback um, because of the idea of it being static, whereas cultures are living cultures and they're constantly yes. changing and evolving. Mm -hmm. um, and for that, and also cultural heritage, again, emphasises that material aspect of it. It's not exclusively... Um, confined to that because it certainly covers intangible heritage but when you talk about culture it's a broad idea of what we mean about this all-encompassing idea and it goes to identity as well and I think that's what's increasingly being emphasised by people and even moving away from this idea of cultural heritage but it is a term that is well known in international law in this area. You've mentioned identity there and at least from my readings, it's it's difficult to divorce the underpinnings of cultural heritage from the conflicts, the, the genocides in which it sort of arose in academic thinking. And identity is really key to the conception of, of genocide. 
could you perhaps talk a little bit about the history of how that's developed in international law? You mentioned the UNESCO Convention, but there are other conventions, other treaties that have come before that that have really um, entrenched, I guess, this idea in international law. So international law, like much of law, um, is responding to things out in society. And these were the early responses and probably things that have existed since time immemorial where people are at war or in conflict. They normally centre in in um, marshalling their people against the identity of those individuals and certainly by the when international law was being codified and um, there was much more practice by the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, even during, and I've written about this in relation to even before the term genocide was coined by Lemkin, there was this understanding during the First World War about the targeting of groups particularly by states. Yeah, we often talk about it in relation to war, but probably the most egregious examples are civil wars and civil conflicts, um, that we have groups being targeted because of what is seen as their common identity and it's often manifest in the culture, whether it be, as I mentioned, during the Yugoslav conflicts, uh, mosques or churches, indeed even cemeteries and schools. Um, An important aspect, and this is being increasingly emphasised within the UN by the UN Special Rapporteur on Cultural Rights, is, and this is reflected also in um, international humanitarian law, is the targeting of individuals within that society, whether they be religious leaders or those that are um, teachers and so forth that um, help to promote, care for um, culture and create culture, often targeted by groups as well. So it's not just monuments and sites and buildings, but also language suppression, but also the targeting of individuals. So uh, a quite tragic example was, and people may remember, is um, during the ISIS occupation of Syria um, in one of the World Heritage Sites where they um, tied the um, archaeologists to one of the columns there and exploded the site and killed him at the same time. So that direct linking of that individual whose role was to care for that site, and that was well known, um, with the destruction of that site. So that deliberate targeting of individuals, but also groups of individuals because of their language or their cultural practices. Um, It's all very much tied to that. Um, How it developed in international law was, as I mentioned early on in the 20th century, there was this idea of denationalisation, which then morphed on because of what happened in the mid-20th century during and in the lead up to the Second World War and the Holocaust um, was the coining of the term genocide. And the person that turned that, Raphael Lemkin, very much emphasised the link between the cultural aspects of it um, the phys- and the physical destruction of um, those peoples. Um, unfortunately, the way that the Genocide Convention was drafted, um, it was drafted with the emphasis on the physical destruction of the group, and that's reflected now in the jurisprudence of the courts. 
Um, why is this problematic? And I would emphasise this, and I think many colleagues that work in this area would emphasise this, is that for Lemkin, and it's in the title of the Genocide Convention, is this idea of prevention and punishment. For Lemkin, and he did many studies throughout the world, including what happened to um, Tasmanian Aboriginals um, in the early part of um, colonisation, as an example, was the destruction of the cultural aspects of that group, what identified them as unique, which was one of the, the early aspects of any genocidal program. So it was almost a forewarning or a canary in the coal mine. So for Lemkin, to say, for him to acknowledge that was very important in any prevention program in relation to genocide, because if you simply wait until they're targeting the individuals of that group, that is their physical destruction, we're way too late in the process. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in the initial drafting of the Genocide Convention, there was idea of, of reparations. So this is what they do after the fact. And that, that plays a heavy, well, that, that's a big part in, I think, your research is, well, how do you quantify or even place any sort of value or concept around reparations for a, a cultural loss, something that's not physical? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Again, that was something, and if you look at Lemkin's book, which um, was a precursor to all this, his early campaign to have this recognised, he also emphasised that. And you're quite right, the early drafts of the Genocide Convention did include that. Um, why, is, why are reparations important? Because of the very aim of any genocidal program, yeah, is to remove not just the physical people, but their very, very memory from that territory. Yeah, so, and for me personally, some of the most egregious examples of this, whether it be in Thessaloniki during the German occupation where they levelled the Jewish cemeteries there to the ground so that not even there was any recognition on the ground of that there was a Jewish presence there, so the destruction of even the cemeteries. And similarly, this happened in Bosnia-Herzegovina as well, is the destruction of um, um, headstones and so forth. So the very removal of any memory of people from that site. And if you have, and when you have people speaking who have gone through this and have survived, um, they talk about... You know, how can you make any correlation between people or their cultural history, you know, their cultural heritage on the ground? And they are very conscious of the purpose of a genocidal program is not just their physical destruction, but this idea of the removal of any markers of them on that site. And it's that which is quite probably probably one of the most frightening aspects of it. And it's one of the reasons why they want the heritage protected and also to for it to be returned to those areas where those genocidal programs have occurred. So it's probably one of the best ways of counteracting any genocidal program. And it's an important aspect, not just for the people that were victims of it, but also the people that are the perpetrators and also their, um, the generations that follow. That's, that brings to mind, I, I can't think of the exact name of the case, but uh, the idea that there were churches or mosques that were demolished and then the, the government of the day weren't allowing the citizens to rebuild uh, those institutions. And, and that was something which a uh, court sought to, to address through reparations. Is that the sort of thing that we're looking at? Could 
it'd be helpful, I think, if you could draw out a couple of examples. Yeah, it's a good example to give. Um, it's and many people are probably not aware of it. Um, as part of the Dayton Accords, um, there was a require. Well, there was the establishment of a human rights tribunal in Bosnia Herzegovina, and unlike the um, ICTY, the International Criminal Court for the former Yugoslavia, which didn't um, address reparations, this human rights tribunal did. And that's one of the um, cases that it heard was um, a the Muslim community um, brought a claim for the return of land so they could reconstruct a um, mosque on land which where the mosque had been demolished. Um, the tribunal found in that case, um, and I should say that a um, Orthodox church was built on that site. Um, if I remember correctly. Um, the court or the tribunal didn't order the return of that parcel of land because the Orthodox Church was already built on it, but they ordered that um, the Muslim community be given a equivalent parcel of land um, so that they could build a mosque in that area. Mm. And that speaks in many ways too, and it's quite often around reparations, but also restitution is the complex histories of um, conflicts and the time that follows after that is competing interests and how to accommodate those in a way that ensures that it is acknowledged what has gone on, that there there is a room there's room for repair, but hopefully down the track also reconciliation, yeah, and the maintenance of peace in those areas. I think one thing that really draws me to your to your research, Anna, is uh, as a practicing lawyer, uh, we know that litigation isn't always the best way to deal with, with certain issues. It's obviously very confrontational, um, but it can also be cathartic as well. And really, your, your research is right along the fault lines where you're dealing with things which maybe litigation aren't best handled for, but you have to repurpose the tools, the institutions that we have to bring out results for claimants and people who have been aggrieved. Uh, speaking maybe less on the legal side and more just on that emotional, ethical, moral side, how have you found that that's impacted your interests and your research? I was fortunate um, as a young lawyer to do work where and throw, literally thrown into the deep end of work of litiga a litigation practice, a taught litigation practice, um, dealing with a generation of people who are now known as the silent generation who were going through quite extraordinary um, circumstances and then as a young person trying to um, advise them was very humbling, I must admit. But also acknowledging, and you quite rightly mentioned, Dan, is that litigation in some ways makes things worse. It's required to bring evidence out and also, and, and I certainly won't demure from the idea that it is uh, the need for that to be possible. And certainly there are times where it's absolutely necessary, but you are quite right in that often it exacerbates circumstances on the ground. Um, and indeed, um, uh, brings out the hurt much more. So I think it's incumbent on us as lawyers when advising people not to pursue our own agendas, but to listen respectfully and thoughtfully to the people that we're seeking to help and advise as to what their priorities are. And so, and not 
to make a situation worse, mm-hmm. um, whether it be for that individual, for that community or for a society, and I'm thinking more in relation to societies that have gone through unconflicts to make that situation worse. Um, it takes a lot of time and also um, standing back and letting those people or who you are advising being able to express what they need and certainly I wouldn't say that the courts necessarily and if they're seeking vindication is not something that you would necessarily get from a court mm. and I'm thinking particularly in relation to the common law system where it's not necessarily geared towards it's more adversarial yeah there are so many factors in play that you don't want to make that person's situation worse yeah that's a great um, point. So, and one thing I, I'd be helped by is, as as we frame this as, to, well, who is the claimant? Is it a is it a, a person? Is it a community? Is it a, a nation in of itself? Could you speak a little bit to how how does a claim come about? How does it arise? Do they go to the domestic national government first if there is one appropriate? Do they go to the UN? What's uh, sort of the framework which they're following? Again, if you're advising somebody, you'd have to be work, uh, working out what their priorities are. Mm. Um, we saw this in relation to, so for uh, the recent example is the Rio Tinto um, destruction yes. in Western Australia. So the most effective, and because of the urgency there, and it was too late in any case because of what they'd done, is bringing it to the attention of the public and the media. Yeah, and the outcry, and that has certainly been effective. And quite often that's why litigation is brought as well, is to bring it to the consciousness of the general public. Um, so I think there are many avenues. They can be legal and non-legal. And people that um, are most effective would be combining all of those um, aspects of it, um, depending on what people and the urgency of the matter um, wish to achieve in those circumstances. And those goals may be short-term and long-term goals. And I think it's really important for us as lawyers to be very brutally honest with people in relation to how those can be achieved and the likelihood of success as well. And that's where the issues and the speak um, in some ways is um, implied in what you've asked me, Dan, is who can bring the claim. So obviously the priorities are determined by who's wanting to push the claim as well or bring that claim. Um, and do they speak for um, the individuals that they say that they are speaking for? And this was certainly, and I'll go back to what we discussed earlier in relation to a genocidal programs. As you can imagine, the significantly disruptive nature of those programs, um, as I mentioned, they quite often target leaders in those communities or um, in those groups in those nations. Um, so that seeking to say who can represent those individuals or that group then becomes problematic by its nature. Yeah. Um, what is interesting, and this is certainly something that's not new to international law, it was addressed by international law from the early 20th century. So um, after the First World War, um, in the peace agreements with Turkey, there was an acknowledgement of what happened to the Armenians and other groups um, that not only could they bring claims, but if there were no people whose property that was, that was confiscated, um, then a representative group of that organisation of that community could bring a claim. Yeah, so if there was no living person 
who could show title that they could bring claims. And this is certainly an idea that was pursued by the World Jewish Congress um, in um, the mid-20th century as a result of the Holocaust. Yeah, so it's that similar idea of representative actions. Yeah. So the claims, sorry, the claims cannot die simply because the genocidal program was effective. I see. And is that enshrined in, in international law or is it dependent on how it's been legislated domestically? Both. So, um, after, so as I said, that was part in after the First World War. It's part of a um, peace treaty with Turkey, which unfortunately wasn't ratified, and then wasn't um, included in the subsequent peace agreement, which was ratified. But after the Second World War, the agreements by the occupying powers of Germany certainly put, uh, passed domestic legislation in their zones of occupation, where they allowed or permitted those kinds of representative actions. Yeah. So not just representative actions, but also acknowledging what had occurred. So the rules of evidence were more relaxed in relation to showing title um, and how to establish that, but also time limits were also um, not enforced as they usually would be in relation to bringing restitution claims. Mm. I think... What comes to mind to me usually when I think about, obviously we've talked about cultural heritage and how it's supposed from cultural property, but the idea of there's these museums these days with you know, they're private institutions or sometimes public institutions, and they have all these artifacts, these objects, which uh, were maybe improperly confiscated during a conflict. Um, I know that you spoke at a RCMC conference a couple of years ago, and that was less, I think, from a legal perspective and more from an ethical perspective. What, what's the ethical responsibility of some of these organisations who may have these artefacts, this cultural heritage? What should they be doing in these situations? Because arguably they shouldn't be waiting for someone to come with a claim. Maybe they need to be a bit more proactive. Um, so I've always emphasised the importance of the legal aspects. I think quite often, um, just to, to make the point, is that quite often what is said by um, these holding institutions is, is, is that um, at the time it was legal. And I would say that that's questionable, mm. yeah. and particularly if one is the country who is removing it or the institutions where the country is located are the ones that are determining what is legal. Yeah, so I would say that don't take it as a given that it was necessarily legal, and I think that's that's questionable in and of itself. Um, certainly there are ethical, and even now there are legal obligations on those and we'll see um, the UNESCO conventions and the 1970 convention and so forth but that is, uh, they only come into effect when those that treaty is in force yeah so it's more recent um, certainly there are ethical aspects and all these organizations their umbrella um, organizations their professional organizations have for a long period of time at least half a century um, emphasized the importance of addressing restitution claims um, particularly in relation to ancestral remains um, and secret sacred objects, so those related to grave goods as it's referred to in the United States as well. Um, so I think the idea of it simply being a moral imperative, not just a legal imperative, um, is important and it's certainly gaining traction, as you will see in Europe and in other parts of the world, where that idea of 
that they are the best guardians of this heritage and all um, that that brings with it the baggage um, that it brings with it as to why they are making that claim is deeply problematic. Um, I would say um, that the reason why, because these calls for return of objects and um, cultural heritage that was removed over a significant period of time during the creation of these institutions have been made for many, many decades. And they've been st- they've been stonewalling them. Why now? I think the reason now, and I think you cannot deny it, is because of the shifting power in, um, within the global community or the international community. Yeah, and that has always been the case. Whenever you're negotiating anything, if you have a more balanced power um, dynamic, yeah, that um, those that are seeking to ignore those claims now can't ignore those claims because those claims are now being made by countries where there is a much more complex and I wouldn't say necessarily balanced, but not certainly not as imbalanced as it had been before. Mm. Yeah, so the economic shifts, the political shifts that are going on in the international community, I think are also um, impacting that. But also that the makeup of those societies where these institutions are located has significantly shifted. Yeah, they're much, much more diverse and you cannot, and I think, I'm thinking of um, the um, challenges being made on the ground um, in what were former metropolitan centres, whether it be in Amsterdam, whether it be in London or in New York, where they, oh, and certainly in New York it would be also Native Americans that have made those claims beforehand as well, is that those, the way of both holding but also the way that they utilise those objects in what stories they tell with those objects are no longer sustainable. The way that they had told stories using those objects are no longer sustainable. They're being challenged, and rightfully so. And I should say that they've been challenged for a long, long time. Yeah. The idea that those challenges have only new is, a mis- is, is not true. Yeah, I think... What is new is that people are finally listening and hearing those challenges. I think it's a really fascinating point to make because what you have then is all of these different uh, pathways through this research topic to different ends. So you have, as you say, uh, an entryway that maybe you're from another country growing up studying uh, in Australia or another place, and then you go into these institutions and then that's sparking an interest. You have an interest in the history of international law, of which this is a really rich area of academic debate. And I imagine that in the students that you teach at the University of Technology Sydney, you're probably getting a cross-section of these interests and motivations. Uh, perhaps you could reflect a little bit on you know, who, who's coming up in this area, what are the types of conversations you have with your students and maybe what research topics they're pursuing uh, as well. It's interesting because it's only recently, in fact, now that I'm starting to get um, inquiries around the particular area of um, restitution mm. uh, as we've been discussing. So it's, it's clearly something that's become topical again, uh, which is really important. There's so much work to be done. Um, and I would always, that I was very fortunate with the people that guided me as a young scholar, um, is very conscious um, that it's a meeting of minds of equals um, in the sense of that 
um, doctoral students are people that will often be at the end of their doctoral studies, probably one of the leading experts in the field that they've covered in their in their doctoral research. Um, so that's why I certainly encourage and try and guide people through that. Um, what's interesting in relation to the people that I've supervised and have been supervising is that it's, as you mentioned, Dan, in relation to this area of um, research just generally, it's both multidisciplinary, mm. um, but also many areas of law and international law. Um, and as I said, you know, that's one of the reasons why I mentioned it, um, is that I was both a practitioner, so I said from a very practical point of view, but also um, acknowledging that these arguments around, particularly around cultural heritage, is the need for it to be a bit more rigorous than it has been today because of the importance of advising people on the ground of what their legal rights are and what the deficiencies of the current law is. And as lawyers, we try and be innovative and try and progress it along and push it along um, to assist people in bringing their claims and having them those claims succeed. In a way, and when I say succeed, in a way that's for the benefit of people that um, then follow them as well. Um, so it's this very little point in succeeding in a case and it's only successful and of, of course you're only advising that um, client but it has to be in a way that develops the, war, uh, the law in a progressive way that's helpful for those that follow as well so that it is not limiting. That's Professor Anna Vurriak explaining cultural heritage and its relationship with international law. The IDGIL podcast is an initiative of the Institute for Migrant Rights, with production by Dan Trevanian and Widi Anto. Special thanks to Sara Afin and Pran Iskandar. You can learn more at IDGIL.org. That's I-J-I-L.org. I'm Dan Trevanian. Rate and follow this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Tune in to the next episode for another global perspective.